This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Weston confronted Bo and said to him, how can you sleep at night? Why were you washing your hands? I really don't remember what Bo's reaction was. I mean, it's just so out of context that it was hard to forget. At the time, it didn't make any sense. I'm back with Robert. As you know, Weston did not remember this, so I went back to Robert to ask him more about it. Really, I think I just wanted it to end. The whole thing is just crazy. You know, it's just crazy. It's so long ago, but it wasn't long after that scene in the apartment living room. It wasn't very long until somebody mentioned the fact that Bo might be tangled up in this whole thing. And so the, the memory was fresh in my mind and corroborated at the time by my girlfriend who had been sitting right next to me. You know, we clearly remembered this confrontation identically. After the idea had come up that, hey, maybe this guy was a murderer, <laughs> that keeps that, that kind of solidifies that memory. According to Robert, when Weston confronted Bo in his apartment, his girlfriend at the time was also there to witness it. Unfortunately, she since passed away, but Robert remembers discussing the incident with her several times after, and they both saw the same exact thing. But Weston doesn't remember any of it. If he says he doesn't remember it, I can't, you know, maybe he truly doesn't remember that. But I sure as hell remember it. Right. Uh, clearly. It was clear as, clear as a bell. I mean, if he's uh, an integral part of this whole storyline, which it's become apparent, then yeah, it's convenient, right? Who likes to remember? ugly things. Ignorance is bliss, right? If you can self-impose ignorance upon your memory, hell. I mean, there's people that probably pay a lot of money to have that ability to forget things, you know? He knows something. I mean, that's the only piece that I really have about him, is his confronting bow in my living room. Why were you washing your hands? I mean, somebody that is completely removed from the story, I mean, why would they be confronting anybody about it? Weston said he never saw Bo again after that morning in Berkeley outside Rainbow Village. That seems very hard to believe, because I know, I mean, you at least saw him one time in my living room. It's hard to keep your lies straight, you know? That's why it's good to just be a truthful person and not have these kind of skeletons in your closet, you know. You know, bullshit just, it just, it catches up with people. I'm sure that it was Weston 
in the house. You know, maybe if you knew somebody and had like a thousand interactions with them, you could maybe kind of morph those all into, you know, a couple different situations. You know, you kind of forget when that happened because you've known this person for so long and done so many things with him. But I only knew him a little bit and don't think that I ever spent any time with him of any measure anywhere else but like in Chico and probably, I don't know, I mean the time at my house was 10 minutes maximum or something. I mean that could have actually been the longest I ever really was in his presence. No matter what really happened that night, these people could have been interviewed. The idea that you couldn't track down these deadheads, the idea that the Grateful Dead were this loose group of people that you, know, you never knew where the band was gonna play. It's just so untrue. Everybody knew. People you know, would get tickets way ahead of time if they could, if they could afford them, and plan out their entire summer or winter or whatever. New Year's Eve, there was always a time of the year if you were a big fan that you'd be looking forward to going to the shows. You knew where they were, when they were. So, yeah, everybody could have been caught up with and tracked down and interviewed at the time this all happened. If you convict somebody on circumstantial evidence, and a big part of that is that other people that might have been witnesses or even been involved in the crime were never contacted. How can that be? I mean, that's what happens when you have a public defender. And that's the tragedy of this whole thing. There's, there's people that know more about this. Do you know what the Grateful Dead story is about? It's an old, old folk tale, and it's actually the, the root of the name. Somebody's died, and their spirit's troubled, and they can't rest, and they need some resolution to some unsolved issue of their life. They're a ghost, and they're going out, and a stranger takes pity on what they don't even know it's a ghost, and they help them then the ghost is grateful and, and everything's peaceful again. It's the actual folk root of the word Grateful Dead and, and uh, the people that, that knew those people, it still matters to them. You know, the, the families and, and all of that. That's what the justice would be if there is any. Have it resolved clearly and not be left in this hanging limbo. I'm here with Randy again. I share with him some of the details of my conversation with Weston, how he didn't remember the incident in Robert's apartment. I don't think Bert would have a bad dream and remember it. You know, I mean, people, I mean, they don't create things like that just out of false memory of somebody saying something to somebody else. I mean, they might mishear a little bit about it, but it sounded like there was definitely a confrontation. For as much detail as Weston seems to remember. It's not like Weston doesn't have any clarity on the situation. He remembers a lot, actually, of what he wants to remember. Yeah, it's selective memory. 
He's trying to stick to his alibi or whatever. Yeah, selective memory. I guess if you were on the scene and and you hid your knowledge, it, it, you, it would turn you into an accomplice, uh, even if you didn't actively plan it or use the gun. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's it's sort of it's out in the field of supposition, but I. I would think if Weston can't testify that he feels he's implicated. I told Randy about one of the biggest things that stood out to me during my conversation with Weston. It was the guilt that he felt. He said Bo told him the next day that Mary and Greg were murdered last night, and he said his first reaction was that he laughed and that he felt guilty about that. That in fact he brought it up to his AA counselor 15 years later. This guilt about his reaction to what Bo said. It doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, if he felt guilty that he knew something was going to happen and he didn't try to stop it or didn't believe it and it happened or, or he had a sense of something was going to happen, that would be guilty. But just yeah, yeah. just hearing from Bo late, later, that it happened, uh, the, the, to me that says that uh, Bo had talked about it or was angry or something and that, it's a, that he knew something could happen. That would make him feel guilty. I don't know. I find these things you're saying strange. Think him saying that there was a confession when there is no confession. I'm, I'm taking a word for this, that there is no confession at all. That, that is very suspicious. It makes no sense. It seems like if there's any hidden truth that uh, Weston probably has more than he's saying, and, and uh, what would it take to get him to come out with it? How would you feel about calling Weston? Well, I'd, I'd like to. Well, I I could call him. He might be he might be more hesitant to. Uh, talk to me if he, he knew you guys were sitting here but it'd be it'd be great to recover something yeah I, I'd like to ask him if he ever saw any of those posters was aware that anybody was looking for Jerry Garcia was tripping, and he had a problem. It was one of those problems that didn't seem particularly difficult to solve, but once you get down to the business of trying to solve it, it seemed damn near impossible. The drugs weren't helping, or maybe they were, who could really tell? It was 1965, and recreational drug use among the counterculture, particularly in Northern California, was coming into bloom. Today, Jerry had smoked DMT, the ayahuasca derivative didn't bring him closer to God as it had the Peruvian shaman some 500 years ago. Nor did the drug freak him out as the quote-unquote work of the devil as it had the 16th century Spanish missionaries who discovered the Peruvians tripping toward crystalline consciousness. But it did root him into the now, 
grabbed his focus and demanded he solve this problem. DMT had a way of rooting you into the underlying structure of the universe despite whatever wild trip it sent you on. DMT trips were different from LSD, often referred to as businessmen's trips because you could do it on your lunch hour. These journeys were much shorter, 30 minutes compared to eight hours, and once you emerged on the other side, you were in less of a fog. You felt tethered into whatever it was you were getting into, connected. And right now, Jerry Garcia felt connected to his bandmates in the Warlocks. Phil Lesh, Bill Krutzman, Bob Weir, and of course, Ron Pigpen McKernan, who at the moment was nowhere to be found, likely off in search of John Lee Hooker records or down by the tracks drinking hooch. So today's problem was left to the rest of the Warlocks to solve. They loved their current band name. It was an improvement upon the moniker of their earlier incarnation, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. Phil wasn't in that band, and neither was Bill. Just Jerry, Pigpen, and the kid, Bobby. By the time they'd gone fully electric and started slinging R&B tunes and wrapping their brains around the potential of musical improvisation, Bill and Phil had joined, and a new name was needed, so the Warlocks was chosen. It was a great name. Sounded like a bike gang, sounded like something that would scream at you off of a long-playing 12-inch album cover. And that was the problem. Jerry and his bandmates weren't the only long-haired musical freaks who'd seen the promise of a band named The Warlocks. Recently, Phil Lesh was digging for albums in a local record shop and discovered a 45 single by another group calling themselves The Warlocks. They were from Texas, and two of its members would later go on to start a band called ZZ Top. Making matters worse was news of another, even more prominent group from New York City who were using the Warlocks as well. And they would later change their name to the Velvet Underground. But Phil didn't know that then, and neither did the rest of his bandmates. So the excellently named Warlocks of San Francisco faced the problem of finding a new band name. No easy task. They set about to meet their challenge one Saturday afternoon at Phil's apartment. Aside from Jerry, the assembled band members were straight and determined. Phil threw out the name The Vikings. Politely, his band members let him know that this name would not fly, simply by not responding to his suggestion. Undeterred, Phil offered up the name The Crusaders. His bandmates remained silent. Phil went back to the drawing board in his mind. Bobby offered up the name His Own Sweet Advocates. Okay, Bobby might be onto something, or so went the mood of the room as indicated by the nods and polite grunts. Bob felt encouraged. He told his bandmates the name His Own Sweet Advocates was a take on The Devil's Advocate. This hit Jerry. The Devil's Advocate, The Devil's Work, The Work of the Devil, The Ayahuasca, The Crystalline World. Jerry blurted out, how about Mythical Ethical Icicle Tricycle? It was nonsense. Everyone in the room knew it, but Jerry's infectiousness and status as de facto band leader generated a sort of reluctant acceptance to his DMT drivel, indicating to him that Sure, that might work. The rest of the band offered up more hippy-dippy nonsense and none of it stuck. And they were laughing, amusing themselves now with ridiculous potential band names. Jerry remained focused. The DMT was doing its thing. He got up from his seat and grabbed a book of Phil's. A 1956 Funk and Wagnall's New Practical Standard Dictionary Britannical World Language Edition. Jerry sat back down, plopped open the huge book on his lap closed his eyes, took his finger, and pointed to the random page he just opened. He widened his eyes, and it was like some sort of clearing had taken shape in front of him. 
right there where his finger was pointing on the page. He later described it as, everything else on the page went blank, just sort of oozed away, and there was Grateful Dead. Big black letters edged all around in gold, man, blasting out at me, such a stunning combination. He was talking about the combination of words, Grateful Dead, but he could have just as easily been talking about himself and his bandmates. A stunning combination of personalities, all different, all wired in together by the same motivation, to be a great band, to make music that meant something. So what did Mr. Funk and Mr. Wagnalls have to say about this new potential band name and what it actually meant? Jerry couldn't believe what he was reading. He looked up from the dictionary and blurted out, Hey man, how about the Grateful Dead? The reaction from his bandmates was immediate. They began jumping up and down, screaming, that's it, that's it. Most of them anyway. Bob Weir did not share the rest of his bandmates' enthusiasm. He thought the name was too dark, too evil sounding. He preferred the tempered darkness of his earlier suggestion, his own sweet advocates, but he could tell. The excitement in the room for Jerry's suggestion was immense and he'd never overcome it. So he went along with it, but he'd resent the name for years, insisting that the morbidity it suggested held them back. But was it morbid, the name, the Grateful Dead? Again, what did it mean? Do you know what the Grateful Dead story is about? The dictionary went on to explain that the term, the Grateful Dead, derived from a folktale wherein a kind-hearted man learns of a recently deceased man's body about to be unceremoniously discarded without a proper burial due to the fact that the dead man died penniless, unable to afford his own funeral. The kind-hearted man selflessly pays the dead man's debt so that a proper burial can take place. He does this out of sheer kindness with no expectation of payback of any kind. The man he is helping is dead, after all. Later in the kind-hearted man's life, he comes upon some hardship of his own and is helped by the spirit of the dead man whose debt he settled selflessly some years earlier. The dead man, grateful, paying the kind-hearted man back. It's an old, old folk tale. It's a story about karma, about kindness, about community, about sharing, about compassion, about taking chances for no other reason than because it's the right thing to do. The Grateful Dead, it was perfect. It perfectly represented what the band was about. It was a root into the underlying structure of the universe, a hard truth about goodness, an ethos the band would carry forward throughout their many decades as a group, an ethos rooted in darkness but penetrating light, light in the strangest places that attracted millions of fans, Mary Joya and Greg Niffin among them. Somebody's died. In a darkness that attracted a small minority of bad actors. Bad actors like James Bo Bowen and Weston Sutton. Somebody's died and they can't rest and they need some resolution. Hey, Weston. Yeah? This is Randy Turley. Hey, uh... Randy Turley, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, huh? Wow.
Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, Weston. Yeah? This is Randy Turley. Hey, uh... Randy Turley, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, huh? Wow. <laughs> wow, Buck Village man. <laughs> that would be he. Wow, I haven't... I thought about you about three weeks ago. Really? Yeah, I was talking about, I was talking about you. Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah I... Uh, I... Uh, huh? Great call. Yeah, it's good, good to good to hear your voice, Weston. It's 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 been a long time. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Mike, Mike and Payne uh, are visiting me, and, and uh, we're we're talking about uh, uh, Rainbow Village. Right. You know right. the the, de- the all that stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I went to the appeal. At, court hearing for international uh, over at the Oakland City Courthouse and I, I went looking for you <laughs> I, I don't know if you if you know that but I we went on a, a little bus tour up the west coast and uh, I had an old photograph of you and I made a, a wanted poster <laughs> and I laminated them up and I thumbtacked them to coffee shops and uh, uh, bookstores trying to find you Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering if you ever saw one. I think I still got one in a trunk. You'd you'd like it. <laughs> well, what can I do? What can I do for you, Randy? Well, uh, um, I, I have a neighbor just freaking out here outside momentarily. I hear her yelling at her boyfriend. <laughs> Human drama. It's everywhere. Want to call back later? No, it's okay. I, I'd like to talk to you again, though. Um, but uh. Time. I mean, I'm easy to get a hold of. Yeah, maybe we can meet and have some coffee and something at some point. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So I'm being asked for the details of my recollections of the uh, of the incident that happened there in, in Rainbow Village, and I'm you know I've been telling them I I got in a Volkswagen bus and I left the town that day and and was going out on tour, and, and so I wasn't really a directly experiencing any any of that and uh i i never really talked to any anybody too much in depth about it that that was there you were there that night correct i was there the night of and i was staying in richard's bus uh the rainbow bus uh um uh and uh and i I could hear the fire you know i could hear people talking at the fire yeah Uh, a fire that was happening and I remember the older lady that was there she was there and I could hear international and for some reason or another uh, Klaus was there too the guy with the big boat yeah yeah uh, he was there and there was uh, there was probably 10 or 12 people there you know yeah uh, you know um, 
And uh, it, 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 for some reason, it somehow got into this uh, Vietnam War argument kind of thing a little bit. I mean, Greg and Mary were cool, spirit changer kind of kids. You know, they were harmless. Yeah, they yeah. They didn't 20 cents between them because they always spent it all, you know, every night. And, uh, you know, they were great kids. And But they, they had their attitudes about free love, happiness, and, you know, you shouldn't be killing babies in Vietnam, you know, because of the brainwash thing. You know, they just, you know, they knew what they knew. And, and you know, international being a product of the war, uh, you know, had a different take on it. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like, you know, no, you don't understand. And no, you don't understand. And, you know, nobody really truly understood because one was brainwashed from the inside and two other ones that hadn't even lived on it. They just heard about it from the outside as they grew up. So, uh, you know, it just kind of got into this little shouting match and there was some leftover fireworks and I could hear the fireworks, but it wasn't gunfire or anything like that. And, you know, it, it was, it, it calmed down, um, you know, and it's, you could hear laughter and stuff and, you know, so I just went to sleep, you know. Um, and then the next day, uh, I was in Berkeley up by the square, and uh, Boat found me. It was a little afternoon, I think. And yeah. And he was like, oh, dude, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And I'm like, no, what? And he's like, Mary got killed. What? What? I'm leaving, dude. I'm out of here. And I'm like, oh, okay. I because I was waiting for Jerry shows, because there was some Jerry shows that was going to happen in Santa Rosa, not Santa Rosa, Palo Alto. And it was between the Greeks and Palo Alto shows. Yeah. So I was just kind of, you know, hanging, you know, a free place to stay, you know. I, I had stayed at the Flamingo Hotel for a few days, but I couldn't afford it anymore. Sure. So Richard was cool. He was like, yeah, dude, you can stay on my bus, you know. You know, Bo was all freaking out. He was like, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here, you know. And I had all my stuff still in Richard's bus. So I went out there, and there was uh, police caution tape up. I was like, there was, but there was no detectives. There was no police because there was Rainbow Village. Nobody really gave a shit about anybody who was out there, including dead kids, apparently. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I walked from the end, you know, because there's no, I didn't have a vehicle. You know, so it was walk, I walked, I got, I had to get a ride down to Flamingo Hotel, down by the end of the strip there. Yeah. And I walked across the bridge, and I walked by Klaus's bus, and Klaus gave me this weird kind of like wave, like, like, look out, there's something up ahead kind of thing, you know? Just, yeah. You know, with hand gestures, and, you know, kind of giving me the heads up. And so when I got out there, it was like, you know, there was tape and stuff, and I kind of had to, you know, I heard that they got lost, you know, whatever. So I got into the bus, you know, by the secret way, and uh, and and grabbed my stuff, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of here, you know. And I saw that lady that was out there. She was out there. Uh, you mean the red-haired, red-haired freckle lady? That yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the older lady, yeah. Yeah. Well, she's she was years old, but she seemed old at the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, and you know, she she kind of explained a little bit of it, you know. And I was like, man, I don't know what's going on here. I'm 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 split. I'm gonna take off. Uh, and she asked me where I was gonna go, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna go to Chico. You know, where else? You know, uh, Santa Cruz is kind of out because people were still banging the. Uh, 
you know, the kids on the street, uh, I forgot what it was called, but, you know, some people got killed. And then now people are getting killed in Berkeley. Well, I'll just keep going north, man. I'm getting out of here, you know. Sure. And so, yeah, I went up, uh, I think it was, it was Bo's for a, a little bit, and then uh, I was out at this other guy's house. He was, I had, I ended up buying a 19-foot travel trailer uh, and parking it on his land. Um, and uh, and I stayed while I was there for three years off and on. Um, I don't know. I didn't hear anything more about it except for this lady got a hold of me like, I don't know, it was like five or six, seven, eight years later. I forget how long it was. And she was some kind of investigator for international criminal defense, something or other, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, she was like, you know, he had gotten convicted because of uh, his confession, and even though they had no evidence. And I'm like, well, a confession is usually enough, you know? And she was like, well, yeah, but there was some problems with his, you know, so we're going through the appeals process, and what do you know about it? You know, I sat down with her and after, you know, because I was wanted at the time in California, so I, it was like the Starbucks, uh, I'm watching you for half an hour before I really approach you kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you Feeling know, wary, huh? Yeah, you know. And so finally she was sitting there for the longest, and so I went up to her and I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? And we sat down and we had coffee. We talked for probably a couple, three hours. You know, I told her everything I knew, which wasn't a whole lot, you know, um, and then told it again and told it again. Still, you know, there's not much that I could really say, you know, I split. And she's like, well, we're working on getting international out of, uh, out of jail. Uh, so if there's anything you know, let me know. And she gave me a card, but I proceeded to lose it because, well, business cards aren't that important to us. There wasn't at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and then I didn't hear nothing until about three, four weeks ago when these people showed up doing a, some kind of podcast blogger thing on it. Yeah. And, uh, they, you know, I sell used ladders on a, as a side business to Craigslist and stuff and, uh, and, and uh, offer up. And uh, they pretended to buy, they were pretending to buy a ladder. And, um, you know, and then they pop the question, these questions on me and it's like, uh, okay, whatever, you know, but still, you should be straight up with people. Let them know, you know? Yeah. And I, I still, I, I, I stole my guts to everything I knew about it, you know? Well, what do I know, you know? And then they were like, there's no, there was no confession ever. So I don't know how he even got convicted. Yeah, no I, I don't know. This is the first time I've heard there was a confession. I, uh, you know, the, I got contacted by that appeal that was going on in the state courts, and uh, they they brought me and Megan down and and had us testify. And so, do do you stay in touch with with Bo at all? No, I haven't seen him since that day. Since that day, huh? Yeah. How, well, uh, so you you rode up to Chico with him? No, no, I went. I just went by the time. No, he went straight. He was he had his backpack. He was gone. You know. So I went out to Bus Village, grabbed my stuff, and I ended up catching a ride out. Okay. I got, I got lucky with my ride too, because I was there. I was in Chico by that night. It yeah. Was like three, three, two or three in the afternoon. By the time I left. 
You didn't get caught on no country on-ramps, huh? No, no, I got a straight ride right there from the end of the strip all the way all the way up to Marysville, which is, I think it was really close. Yeah, that's an easy hop from there because you're, you're on that 99 then. And you can stand at a light instead of a on-ramp. So I was there before, I don't know, before midnight, before 11, something like that. I mean, I got there late at night, and then I just went to Boz's house and, uh, and, and crashed in his, I don't know where I crashed. I think I was, back up, crashed with Summer. I met her, she was there, and she was like, yeah, hang with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's pretty open house, too. I'm still in touch with her. She's out in Texas, and her her daughter's all grown up with three three kids herself now. Oh, my God. Oh, oh this is a time warp. <laughs> Isn't it? So do, do, you, do you remember any people that were on on the bus that, that, uh, that day? On on the uh, on the blunderbuss. I don't. I, you know, I thought it was closed up that day. I thought it was because I was in Richard's bus, so I couldn't get into your bus because I didn't know the secret way. So. Oh. Uh, yeah. I thought it was closed up. I don't think anybody was there. You know. Anybody? I never thought anybody was. Maybe. You would know better than me. I, I oh, yeah. I, I'm surprised to hear that. I, I didn't know that it was locked up. I, and I you, well, Do you know where the couple was staying at then? No. I thought they were, like, tent, they were tenting. I don't even think they were in the vehicle. Okay. Like, tenting. Okay. Uh, Greg and Mary, you mean? Yeah. 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 But they weren't really a couple. They were just two spirit changer kids, like brother and sister, hanging out. Right. I don't think they were in a relationship or anything like that. Yeah, you know, I only I only met him. I don't think I even ever met her. I I remember hearing him play guitar a couple of times, and that's. God, there were such cool kids too. I have no idea what. Yeah. Did, did they have like a little like Christmas party or something? Like that? Did Did you? Did I heard that international got them? You know. It made sense that, you know, after I heard he confessed that it was, I just put two and two together, that it was that argument over Vietnam and, you know, Hindus versus not Hindus, you know. Yeah, yeah, soldiers not getting respected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so that made sense to me, so I didn't, I never thought second again about it, you know. Did, did you ever hear that uh, Bo and Heard had a relationship? No, uh, I didn't think so. Okay, you 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 didn't come up with Bo, did you? No, no. I, I, and, I saw him at the square in Berkeley. He had his backpack with him, and that was the last. That's the last item. Okay, okay. I never saw him. Yeah, I, I, I never really knew him. You know, he was a, like a friendly competitor. <laughs> well, he, you know, he sold, he, he sold pot and mushrooms and a little ecstasy, but he also sold harder stuff, and that wasn't my scene, so yeah. he's more of a friendly competitor than anything else. Okay. I mean, you know, I knew of him, you know, I knew that he could get things, but they weren't my people then, so I just usually... Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. I, I would feel the same way. I wouldn't want to get too involved with somebody that was, was swinging something hard. 
Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm rather relieved to hear from you. I always wondered what became of you. I ended up getting clean in 98, and I went to Narcotics Anonymous meetings for like 15 years, and I went as JB. Um, I just took my great uncle's name, and I made it initials, and it was the perfect... You know, sure. It was the perfect drug dealer name because JB doesn't mean anything. Well, it's good good to hear from you. I'm glad I got a hold of you, and uh, I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay, brother. I love you, man. All right. Take care, Weston. Well, tell me about the uh, confession. That's not, not true. Yeah, okay. There is no confession. He's the only person who's ever said that. He said something interesting there that I thought was weird. He initially said that after they were murdered, he stayed with Bo for a little while in Chico. And yeah. then he said the last time he ever saw Bo yeah, was he, that day. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, the, I think it was, it was Bo's for a, a little bit, and then... They couldn't keep a story straight. <laughs> you know, you're trying to tell people what you think they want to hear. I never lie, but I have a hard enough time getting people to believe me when I'm telling the truth. So I, I, I think he probably knows more than he's saying. For whatever reason, Weston kept mentioning a guy named Klaus, who lived on his boat in Rainbow Village at the time. He got weird vibes from him. I would say that he has more to the story than I thought he did. I mean, already that boat had something, it was already a weird energy. He heard him at the fire that night with Mary and Greg. He was at the fire earlier. I mean, I could hear his voice, and he was the only non-us that was there. And saw him waving strangely at him the next morning. And then there was Klaus. I don't know how I got him into it either, but he was, he had more to do with it than I thought he did. Maybe that's why he did that hand signaling thing. I don't know. Without directly pointing his finger, it was almost as if Weston was suggesting he could be involved somehow. So where was this Klaus guy now? Is he even still alive? Klaus's boat was in proximity also to where this happened, right? And they got thrown in the bay. This is James Barnes, the investigator who worked on Ralph's defense team during his appeal. I was told that he probably lived on a boat and that he had lived on a boat and he probably still did. And uh, I can't remember exactly how I located him, but when I did, Klaus is a memorable guy. <laughs> He's like over six feet tall with a big beard. He is widely known in the, in the maritime community, I think. So maybe he's living on a boat somewhere. Well, that's pretty nonspecific. All of my internet searches yielded nothing. No phone numbers, no emails, no address. It's like the guy flat out didn't exist. But after a few days, I did find something. In the early 2000s, an amateur blogger had posted a piece on his website about a guy named Klaus von Wendel, who lived on his boat in an area called Fisherman's Cut. It had to be him. But the guy who published the blog was nowhere to be found either my only option was to start calling different marinas in the area, near and around Fisherman's Cut in California. Turns out there's over a dozen marinas in the area, so one by one I called them. 
Not even an hour into calling, one of the marina owners seemed to know exactly who I was talking about. He eventually gave me the cell phone number for a guy named Klaus. It was him. I couldn't believe it. We arranged a day and time to meet at a nearby marina. He was a very old man with white hair and a long scraggly beard, like a cross between Poseidon and Santa Claus. He said he lived on his own private island, and the only way to get there was by his own boat. We're going to Paradise Island. My producer Mike and I piled into a small dinghy boat, having just met this guy. I finally arrived in Paradise. I hope this was a good idea. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.